Welcome back class. In today's podcast, I'll be talking about practical considerations for forming groups. When we're thinking about forming groups, we want to consider the group composition, the group size, the frequency and duration of meetings, the actual length that the group will run, the location, and whether or not we want to have open versus closed groups. Now, group composition is important in determining whether or not the group should be homogenous or heterogeneous. This is going to depend on the purpose and goals of the group. So for a specific targeted population, say for mothers of postpartum depression, it probably makes sense for the group to be composed entirely of mothers with postpartum depression. Um, same could be true for survivors of domestic violence for an empowerment group. So the specific target population should be similar. This will lead to a more cohesive group where group members can relate to one another and build a bond and trust. Examples of heterogeneous groups could include personal growth groups, process groups, parenting groups, AA, um, where there is a, you know, a specific common interest, um, but it's not as targeted. Okay. Now, the question that often comes up is whether or not to have groups be, um, you know, based on sexual identity. And there are mixed opinions here. Um, I think more and more we're moving away from a group uh, that isolates individuals based on gender, but in some contexts, some service organizations, it might make sense to do that based on the preference of the individual. For example, a group for individuals who've experienced military sexual trauma we might have a group for individuals who identify as female and those that identify as male and those who identify as gender fluid or cross-gender. Um, so it's something to consider and something that we want to ensure that we're being mindful of and culturally sensitive to. Okay. Now, when we think about the group size, a lot of this is just going to depend on different factors. The age of the clients, the experience of the leader, the type of group that will be explored. So for example, for a group of elementary school children, uh, they might have three to four members. So a relatively small group, and that might work best. A group for teens might have six to eight participants. A parenting group might have upwards of 20 participants if it's psychoeducational. Generally speaking, uh, a, a pretty common size is between uh, six to eight members. Sometimes you'll see 10 to 12. Um, I personally think six to eight is the sweet spot. That could provide a good amount of interaction for everyone to feel a part of the group. When we're thinking about the frequency and duration of the meetings, this is going to depend on the composition of your group. 
Now, for example, with children, and sometimes with teens, it can be helpful to meet more often for a shorter period of time. So, say, 30 minutes twice a week. In a school setting, the meetings often correspond with class periods. So, it can be as short as 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 42 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. Just depends on the school. For groups of adults, um, usually one to two hours weekly is preferable. If you're running an inpatient group, that's going to likely be a daily group, sometimes for 45 minutes. Some groups are an hour and a half. Um, some groups are twice daily for an hour and a half. So you can see the setting is really going to determine um, the frequency and duration of your meetings. When we think of the length of the group, you know, many evidence-based groups last between 12 to 16 weeks, um, sometimes upwards of 20 weeks. That's usually a long enough time for group members to develop trust and to work toward behavioral change. Um, in an intensive day treatment program, sometimes, you know, the, the group is all day. Sometimes there are, um, intensives that can be like retreats. Um, you see this in private practice. One reason that the groups are time limited, um, and I think I've mentioned this, uh, is a direct result of managed care and trying to, um, you know, get as much done in as short of a period of time and to serve as many patients as possible. And through research, um, refining the duration. I also, and this is my personal bias, don't know that it's helpful for someone to be in counseling um, forever. Um Sometimes it can facilitate dependency, and um, not everyone has access to supportive counseling on an ongoing basis. I'm hopeful that that will change as needed um, as we continue to transform our healthcare system. Um, and yet, we don't want to pathologize people for everyday anxiety or everyday worry. Um, you know, so there's a fine line. Another reason um, that can be helpful for having short-term groups is that it can really motivate individuals because they understand that they have limited time uh, to achieve their goals that they set out for. And, you know, if we can decrease depression in 16 weeks, um, why wouldn't we? Um, but sometimes the length of a group can be very long-term. I think I shared an example in one of the classes that there was a long-standing group um, over a decade long, same day and time, every week for over 10 years. And um, there may be, you know, room for that depending on um, the group. Many times it can be a peer support group. Maybe it's self-facilitated. Um, so that does occur. 
Now this may seem very basic, but the location for group meetings is really important. Not only for confidentiality um, and privacy, which is essential, but sometimes the space can create constraints. Um, you know, I've facilitated groups in ad hoc spaces like cafeterias, glorified closets, um, classrooms, and the reality is you got to get what you get. You know, you take what you can get. Um, but please do advocate for a group space if you can. Also, that it's maintained. A cluttered environment makes it difficult for the members to engage therapeutically. Um, we want to limit the number of distractions um, as much as possible. We want to have a comfortable, uh, you know, space. Hopefully, there's a comfortable temperature uh, range, you know, and sometimes there could be water available, tea, coffee. Um, you know, these attributes of the location seem basic, but they, they go a long way, I think. Um, and the space shouldn't have people dropping in. In the emergency shelter that um, I worked at when I was facilitating um, groups, uh, sometimes we would have board members kind of walking through the setting and we would be in the middle of the group. So it was disruptive and problematic. And so I had to address that issue. But um, yeah, people shouldn't be dropping in on the groups, whether that's a school administrator, a teacher, a board member, or your boss. It should be confidential. A question that often comes up has to do with um, whether or not the group should be open versus closed. And this is really important. Open groups mean that the participation of the members come and go. There's a lot of utility for that, particularly for skills groups where you can have an open door policy kind of revolving. Uh, many organizations like to have one for, you know, life skills, supportive processing groups where you can offer a service immediately. Um, and that can be helpful to engage individuals that maybe are ambivalent about therapy, individual or group therapy. Closed groups have a time limitation. Um, the meetings are determined by the number of sessions and the number of cycles within a particular month, quarter, or year. Um, so an example might be a dialectical behavior therapy group that is 52 weeks long. When you're doing a real DBT program, it's like at least a year. Um, and there's group therapy, individual, case management. Um, but maybe your organization has a um, adapted DBT group. You often hear it referred to as DBT light. And DBT light will be 12 weeks long. And you'll have three different cycles uh, or four different cycles um, every year. Okay. So a closed group, um, the members are expected to remain in the group until it ends and new members are not added until the next cycle. So it's not revolving. It's not just open. Um, and we talked about screening participants in. For closed groups, it's really important that you screen 
um, to make sure that the group members are appropriate. Again, this is really important for group cohesion and um, you know the development of trust of trust and and to decrease attrition because we want group members to stay involved and actively participating. And so um, screening can go a long way. All right. Um, now, when you're deciding whether or not the group should be opened or closed, it really should depend on what the purpose is, okay? Um, open groups have the advantage of, you know, of course, having new group members as others leave. Um, so in terms of access, you can create access. Um, it also has the advantage of, you know, providing an immediate service. Um, a disadvantage of an open group is that, you know, if you have a lot of changeover, there could be a lack of cohesion, okay, a lack of um, trust or bonding. Um, sometimes you don't have a choice, right? So like in a hospital setting, sometimes there are day treatment groups where, you know, the clinicians have to have an open group because the turnover is so steady, Um you know, so sometimes that's just the case. Um, and then, you know, most importantly, perhaps, is the type of intervention that you'll be using is going to determine whether or not it's opened or closed. For many of the group treatments that are focused on decreasing specific symptoms of a disorder, they are sequential. So they build on skill development. So skill A leads to skill B, which leads to skill C, which leads to skill D, right? It's kind of an integrative approach. Um, and so if someone comes in and it's an open group, week D, then they're kind of lost. It can be done, and I've seen um, adaptations of cognitive behavior therapy groups, um, but it could be harder, I think, in some ways. So... There are the overview of the practical considerations when um, developing a group. All right. I hope you found this helpful. Take care.